Editing is one of my favorite things to do when it comes to filmmaking. And it's one of the earliest things that I taught myself because I love it. I love the act of taking a wide shot and a medium shot and putting them together and then changing the entire vibe of it by putting a sound effect underneath or putting music underneath. It's such a magical, the most important step in making anything when it comes to filmmaking, when it comes to commercials, when it comes to music videos. It is where it is all brought together. And you've heard me do editors on the show. You've heard me have editors on the show, not do them, dude. <laughs> you've heard me have editors on this show and you've heard me uh, get romantic about it and talk about how important editing is to filmmaking. And if you're any crew person on a set, if you're someone that is a makeup artist, if you're someone that is a background extra, beg your directors, beg your filmmaker friends to sit with them in the edit room. Understand the process. Understand what your role does to affect the process of it. And anybody that has been working on my crews that have been in my edit room, when they're back on set the next time, they're better for it. It's an amazing, magical place. It's a place that I go to after all of the stresses of trying to take an idea that I thought about on my own and run it through the realities of life. Uh, locations are changing, schedules are sh uh, shifting around, actors are changing. All these things are making my original idea less than it was on paper. And so I go through this traumatic experience, which is production. I usually try to give myself a week off in between, and then I go into the edit room. And if you're doing it by yourself, it's kind of lonely. It really is. Especially if you're the director, if you're the filmmaker, how fucking sad is it when you go into the edit room, you load your footage into uh, your editor, and then you look into that folder and that folder represents an entire day. That folder represents 12 hours of hard ass work, thousands and thousands of dollars. And you open up that folder and there's five clips inside. <laughs> and you're like, Jesus Christ, did I shoot enough today? There are only five fucking clips in here. I have that anxiety every time I sit down for an edit. Even if someone brings me stuff, and people and uh, directors will bring me things that they want me to cut. And they'll be like, we shot a ton of stuff and it's super cool. And I open up that folder and I go, mm, did you not get coverage? Mm, you know what I mean? How many of you editors out there are listening to this going, oh my God, yes. Right? And so then what happens is everything that happened on set, all of those struggles, all of those battles, all of those accomplishments are gone. They're reduced down to these clips. And so as an editor, you're going through these clips, you're referencing the script, you're referencing the mood boards, you're going through all that stuff. And then you start to build a world. You start to build tone. You start to build performances. You start to build the most exciting sequences in a film. It's magical. There's a level of anxiety, but it's magical. The actual art of crafting a story in the edit room is a lot of fun. It's exciting. I get jazzed up about it. I get juiced up about it, right? But that's only a fraction of what an editor does. Now you have to be correctly archiving your cuts. You have to be 
uh, looking through all the footage and knowing all of the footage. And then you have to be dealing with directors that come in behind you or producers that come behind you or clients that come behind you. And then they start questioning what it is that you're putting together. And you're like, I've seen all the footage and I know that this is the best. Yeah, but we need to see it. So now you're becoming a therapist, right? Very similar to what a makeup artist is on set. You're now sitting in the room and you're talking through a panicked director. You're talking through panicked producers going, it's not really as bad as you think. If I lay down some music, it still gets that thing accomplished. And I know you couldn't afford that helicopter, but I think we could do it with sound effects off screen. You know what I mean? It's a magical, strange world. It's a therapist office for storytellers. So today I'm excited. I'm getting into it with a great editor. Matthew C. Hart is on the show today. Uh, I can't wait for you guys to meet him if you don't know who, who he is. Um, but uh, he's done narrative work. He's done documentary work. He's done commercial work. He's done the whole gamut. I was introduced to him because he edited The Last Thing Mary Saw, the film that Cruda shot. Um, I just uh, saw that movie. I was lucky enough to see it in advance. Uh, and it is phenomenal. The director, Eduardo, is fantastic. Him and I are buds. We've talked on the phone. And he's like, you need to get my editor on the show. Uh, what else is Matthew Cut? The Sound of Silence, uh, Port Authority, A Vigilante, uh, Love After Love, um, Frank and Lola, Don't Worry Baby, etc., etc. I'm looking at his website right now. Head on over to MatthewCHeart.com and you can go through this with me. Uh, he did a documentary called This Much I Know to Be True. Really? You did that? Actually, holy shit. I'm very excited about it. That's what's his name? Nick Cave. Oh, fuck yeah. We got to talk about that when we sit down with him. Also, uh, really great commercial work. Uh, Hugo and Marie, Google Play, um, Toyota, all sorts of stuff. Uh, I want to get into it hard with Matthew. We're going to get nerdy about the process of putting together commercials about what is the difference between putting together commercials and putting together narrative films and i really want to understand his process when he sits down cold and gets going so if you're someone that loves editing if you're someone that wants to be an editor strap yourselves in i think this is going to be a good one i haven't recorded it yet and i'm talking real fast because i got about five minutes before matthew shows up uh so welcome if you haven't figured it out yet this is in love with the process this is my show i am your host mike petchy come grab a seat quick grab a beer grab some snacks i laid out some stuff the air conditioner was running nice so it's nice frosty in here grab a seat quick matthew's on his way and uh we're gonna get into it before i do thank you everybody for following me on instagram at mike petchy and following the podcast at on love with the process pod on instagram you've been sending me suggestions for guests and i'm listening i'm trying to book those guests that you guys have suggested to me um, but while you're on instagram go follow our sponsors and leave my sponsors notes that you've heard them on our show this continues to get them to sponsor us right there so go follow puget systems go follow jambox go follow indie pro follow all the people that are in the description of this episode and just leave them little notes like i appreciate the fact that you guys make mike shows possible hey i heard the episode with matthew i'd love to build an edit system puget you know what i'm saying 
it really makes a difference to the show. I'm not asking you guys to reach into your wallets to pay me. All I'm doing is asking for about two seconds of your time to write to our sponsors on Instagram and let them know that you appreciate the fact that they support us. All right. What are we at? 926. Okay. So without further ado, you know the deal. You got those noise canceling headphones on. Crank those fuckers up to 11. I'm going to uh, queue up a banging track from one of our amazing artists. And by the way, if you guys love the music on this show, I also lift, list all of the artists in the description of this show. And I like to do what I call music showcases. This is usually an episode that I release on Thursdays during the week, but you can find all of my music showcases where I play songs and talk specifically about the artists that give songs to this podcast. You can find all that at inlovewiththeprocess.com. Go to inlovewiththeprocess.com, click on the music showcase section. I still have to update a few new ones, but every artist that plays something on this show gets a music showcase. I usually play about two or three tracks from their album, and I send you in the direction of all their great stuff. Many of these really banging uh, retro wave and synth wave artists put out limited edition vinyls. Okay, so if you're a vinyl nerd like I am, I'll, st- I'll tell you where all that shit is. Go to inlovewiththeprocess.com and check out our music showcases. So crank those fucking headphones up to 11, strap in and get ready for a big time editing episode on the brand new In Love With The Process. Well, they come as if from outer space in a variety of weird guises. Defender, Pac-Man, asteroids. To fans, they represent a challenge. But to critics, as Terry Drinkwater reports, they are a menace. Thanks for being on the show. How are you, dude? I'm really well. Thanks for having me. Excited to uh, to be here. I'm very excited to have you on. It's been a moment. It's been a beat since I've done uh, a, an editing episode. Um, yeah, and they're, uh, they're the rarer ones. Yeah. They're, they're special because they're rare. <laughs> well, it's always <laughs> tough getting an editor in on their schedule because I know how crazy those schedules can be for you guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I um I don't know. We really haven't talked about it, but uh, I've been an, uh, an editor for years myself. I've edited commercials. I've edited some of my own pieces. I've worked for other folks, um, and I have such a love of the art of putting together a bunch of random clips and making it into a world. I think it's super fun. 
And uh, I want to sort of get into it deep with you, if you're if you're willing to get nerdy with us on the show today. Yeah, absolutely, anything. Yeah, I I love talking about all aspects of it because I feel like, you know, as everybody kind of knows, there's it, it's a lot it's a lot more complex than it seems when you first uh, if you first look at what an editor does. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what do you mean? There isn't like a, an iPhone plugin <laughs> that you could just apply and then make well, that shit I, work. I personally use yeah the edit film button. And then I just sit back, yeah. drink coffee, and have lunch. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, well, let's let's uh, give some context for the folks that uh, may be meeting you for the first time. Um, why editing? Why'd you pick this? Out of all the art mediums out there, why did you pick this? Ooh, um, I I don't know if I know the full, true, honest answer to that, but I. I had I didn't go to film school. I'd done a number of random little careers um, before I got into film, and a friend I knew was working in a post production house and recommended that I just run around. This was in London, back in London. He recommended I I because I I I told him I was interested in getting into film, and and he said, well, you know, just run around uh, town with your resume, and you know stop in at these uh these companies and, and tell them that you're interested and so i did that and i ended up getting a very junior job <laughs> as, as a runner you know i would get the editor's sandwiches and fill the fridges and bring the clients into the the suites and things like that so that was my first introduction to it um and that's where i ended up learning a little bit about avid and you know some of the technical stuff that that went on well, I was gonna, um, I was gonna ask you what was on that a resume originally that was uh, anyway relevant to doing post production. Had you done any jobs prior no, to this? I had, I had done a couple of film courses after I quit. I, I had done random different jobs, uh, you know, in my early twenties, and I after I thought, you know, film. So I was, I was really into skateboarding, and actually, skateboarding was something that opened my eyes to the fact that editing. Oh yeah, was a thing. Oh yeah, because of all the skate videos. Were you a big skate video guy? Yeah, a little bit. I wasn't a big skate video guy, but I it, it opened it opened my eyes, you know, and I, I messed around a bit in that world, and so it sort of it sort of opened my eyes, like oh, this is a this is not just mercurial magic. This is something that I might actually be able to do. <laughs> right, um, right, right. And so yeah, there was a, there was an interest there. And I then took a few short film courses, you know, the kind of film course that's like six weeks long or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. Um, yeah, I did very got similar. Got my hands dirty, you know, shooting Super 16 films and, you know, editing in camera and, you know, little things like, like that. Mm -hmm. And then um, I put that on my resume and I, I had a few other technical skills from the, from the, you know, little bits and pieces that I had done you know, skate videos, things like that. So I just, you know, it was a really junior role. It was starting right at the bottom. So they didn't, they just wanted enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. So eventually I, I got a job at one of these post-production companies in Soho. Yep. And, um, yeah, started from there and I wasn't really sure if I wanted to do sound or, you know, visual effects or editing, but, um, it was there that I got a taste for what all the things, you know, that you could do and, and started to learn the Avid and things like that. And it just went from there. And I, I did random different jobs, became a freelancer as an assistant editor. 
uh, worked on like TV shows and arts documentaries and even a movie and um, and then got my break from there and ended up editing these sort of slow paced, beautiful arts documentaries um, for this tiny company in in London that was absolutely fantastic. And that was that was my true introduction to editing there. The boss there was very lovely to me. And I think he could tell I was learning mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. He, he knew I was learning and he was very generous and kind. And, um, you know, when I was too nervous to press the space bar to show him an edit, you know, he would, he would be like, it's okay. This is a process just, you know, go through it. And then you, you know, you sort of go from there and you become less and less nervous and more and more confident the more you do, I guess. Well, hold on. Let me, let me pause you for a second and let's go back a bit to when you were talking about being a runner, because I know, I know that there's a lot of young folks that listen to the show and I know that there's a lot of young folks that are just like, Hey, I have this idea and I want to be an editor and I should just be an editor now. Um, and so some of them would sort of turn their noses up to being a runner. Um, but there's so much to be learned if, if you're, even if you're trying to just become a PA or if you're trying to figure out different aspects of this film industry, I'm constantly telling folks to listen to the show, um, to go and be a PA and go be an assistant and go do that. Um, was there any highlights that you remember being a runner? Was there any stuff that really stuck out to you that you learned? Did you get to see how they were communicating with clients? Oh, oh of course. Yeah. I mean, I learned, I learned a shit ton. I mean, I, I didn't know anything. Mm. So I learned how to handle myself around people who were difficult. I learned, you know, I would tag along on a shoot where they used a super high end, high frame rate camera mm. or, you know, I would, um, uh, all, all these little, you know, you, you, you get told to go and drop a drive off at Delane Lee where they're doing a mix, you know, and, and Pierce <laughs> yeah. Brosnan comes out and you have to stand there and watch him loop ADR. And you suddenly become aware of all the sort of myriad aspects of what goes into making a film that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, there was a lot to learn. And, and I even sometimes will PA on a, on a friend's short, today to this day because there'll be something you know fair enough they might use me as a an editor on set kind of thing or they might ask my opinion or something but mostly i'll i'll just do it if i have a spare day and they're shooting and i'll they'll say you want to come and hang out and i'll 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 go i'm not too proud to get the coffees to this day you know um because there'll be something that you learn yeah yeah no 100 percent. if you go into it with the right mindset and you have the ability to sort of look around. I, I mean, because being an editor can be such a reclusive thing, you know, and, and oftentimes I think it's important that there's a sense of distance between you and the set of what has been shot. So that way you, you're not holding on to any of the, yeah. the, the preciousness yeah. that a lot of the folks that, that are on that set can really help. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's also fascinating if you, have an understanding of how things are done or have an understanding of how coverage is physically shot in a space and, and being able to see all that stuff. It really helps you, at least me, it would help me, um, you know, for the direct filmmakers that I was working with from an editor standpoint and say, Hey guys, we might want to try to do this. And I know it's difficult, um, to put a microphone on that kind of outfit, but if you had planted two mics in that space, I would have still potentially been able to use that kind of stuff. So you, you sort of wrap right. your head around it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Being, being an editor is a bit weird uh, just to follow on from what you just said, because yeah, you look, you work alone in a dark room and yet one of the most important things 
you can be as personable and and <laughs> you know it doesn't work if you're just this little gremlin yeah. who, who who you know is technically skilled and sits in a dark room that you'll never be a good editor if that's what you are you, you have to have a personality and understand how how the set works as well otherwise you, you don't have any empathy for what the director's going through I've always said that being a, a portion of being a great editor is also being a good therapist. <laughs> For- yeah, I'm not sure if I'm especially good at that, but I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have a lot of depressed filmmakers that come and sit behind you going, that's all we shot that day? I thought we got yeah. more footage yeah. than that. Yeah. No, I've, I've had directors sliding down the wall behind me, clutching their head <laughs> and wailing, you know, um, various stages of the cut when when producers are are emailing their displeasure um that things can get hairy yeah they can it's it's like there's no lying there's no bullshitting when you're in the edit room you see what you got uh you're trying to make it work (laughs) yeah you definitely have to get to that point with the director quickly that you give up any uh bullshit kind of posturing because the longer that that goes on the let you know you're just not getting good work done yeah so yeah. The, the sooner that you can both drop your egos and have a good cry in front of each other and and, and wail and gnash of teeth and you know be able to be honest and open about why this you think this scene needs to go or mm-hmm. that line needs to go but um but being respectful at the same time it's a difficult balance it's really hard yeah, yeah, it is. It's, it's probably the hardest part of being an editor. Actually, is is obviously the craft is very important, and the technical stuff is sometimes important. But the 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 politics is the is the thing where you really learn to be an editor because everybody has ideas. Yeah, it's, it's a question of when do those ideas come out? When's the right time for them? Yeah, uh, I mean, you had a great interview that I heard a little while back on your show with uh the editor of mandy and and he sort of said the same thing it's 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 yeah. really a kind of you, you got to pick your your timing yeah yeah it's fascinating and then at the end of the day too um you feel like a truth teller like if i'm a when i'm just directing and i'm working with editors and i prefer when i do something that's larger i prefer to have an editor i prefer to have that initial audience member right because that's what it feels like to me like if there's an editor it's like okay so this this guy hasn't been on set like she hasn't wasn't involved with all the fucking politics on set and like you know the the heartbreak i literally i literally don't care how hard that crane (laughs) shot was for you to get i don't i literally don't care i'm sorry but yeah it's good i I, I didn't give a shit yeah it's good it's good because you need that because you know who else doesn't care the fucking the audience. audience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. Okay. So uh, you started doing assistant work on uh, these documentaries. Is this, was that the Nick Cave stuff that you did or was that later on? Did you actually edit oh, no, the no, Nick no, Cave? That, that was very recent, the Nick Cave thing. Um, I kind of did a little, I had a little return to documentaries recently to do, to work with Andrew Dominic and, and do that Nick cave. Oh, documentary. so cool. But that was very recent. No, but yeah, when I started out, I, I assistant edited on everything, TV shows, films. And then I beca- began an, as an editor on mm-hmm. these documentaries. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and that was my my world for a bit. And when I moved to New York, I I continued very I, I aimed very specifically at independent features and sort of really really kind of st- stuck my claws in and. and and really tried hard to get into that world. Mm-hmm. Well, when you were doing the assistant stuff, right? So yeah. for, for the young folks that are listening to the show, what, what are assistant editors generally doing? So it's changed a lot, but even when, you know, years and years ago, when I was an assistant editor, you, you doing a lot of the technical things that, need to be taken care of so that the editor and director can focus on their work essentially. Mm -hmm. So whatever that requires, it could be getting the footage and sound into the editing machines in a way that's well organized. And there's a lot more to it that I think that people don't realize in terms of the technical backend stuff that has to be 100% perfect to avoid problems, expensive problems, time-consuming problems down the line. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a good job to do because, you know, as an editor, if you know nothing about assistant editing these days, I, I think it would hold you back because you it's not that you wouldn't be able to solve the problems as much as I, I think you just would get there – there would be things that you could fix instantly on your own. Yeah, yeah. If you know, if you know the concepts and you know the – the technical backend stuff. I, I think a lot of people think of editing as like, oh, I just need to know in, out, overwrite. And if I know how the front end of the software works, I can be an assistant editor. And it's it's absolutely not true. The back end of the software, whether it's Premiere, Avid, or whatever, mm-hmm. a whole different world mm-hmm. of metadata and sometimes even coding, um, visual effects, tracking, you, you know, in ingesting, transcoding, Thinking it's a whole different world. I've, I've seen people blag it sometimes and, and say that they know how to be an assistant editor because they've dabbled in the software and then they, they get a rude awakening. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it gets pretty intense. And when you're, when you're talking about doing a feature film and you're talking about organizing like, you know, hours and hours and gigs and gigs worth of, worth of uh, material and then trying to sort through all that stuff and then conform all that stuff and, Oh, it can be such a nightmare. And having a great assistant, yeah. having someone that really has their head wrapped around all that stuff and and can save your ass, really. And just like, what the fuck happened with this? And can you and then they just know how to go back and deal with all that. It's it's yeah. There's nothing worse in my experience as an editor when the technical stuff starts to get in my way. Or like you're you're doing something and maybe the machine's not working the right way, or you're getting lag when you're trying to pace out a sequence, or you can't find certain clips. Um, That's exactly right. Yeah. You can't wing it. I mean, I've had jobs where I've taken over from someone who was fired, which is uh, a common, it's a common thing in this industry, especially with editors, because it's the, you're the one replaceable part if everything else is going wrong. And I I don't Uh. like to take over from other editors and it's, it's usually problematic, but I have done it from time to time. And, uh, sometimes the assistant editing work has not been done well and it's it's leading the director to tears because the editor and the director or I and the director can't can't work yeah um, obviously if I if I do a film I make sure I know who the assistant editor is and I make sure that they know how to do it and if they don't I teach them 
Um, yeah. Because you, you just can't afford it. You have not enough time in the schedules. So, yeah. That's going to be so weird. Walking in on like a fired editor's like workspace. And, and <laughs> I, I just picture like walking into a garage and there are like papers and paints all over the place. And you're like, I don't know what the fuck is yeah. this. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can be, it can be pretty disturbing. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, but, but, but mostly people, mostly once you get out of the the super low budget, yeah, indie, you know, tiny budget stuff, people mostly know what they're doing, and and um, you, you know, that's pretty rare. Usually, you're walking into a job because the editor didn't know what they were doing, or they weren't the right fit, or had to leave for some reason. Right. Um, well, they weren't and good... usually, usually it's not a problem these days because people, people know how, how important it is to, to have that level of organization and planning. Yeah. I, I like years, cause we used to do years ago when I had a production company and a, and a uh, post-production company, we used to do music videos and commercials and stuff. And, uh, you know, when you first start, I think you're just a bit less organized. At least I was, I was a bit less organized and I would just like focus completely on what was happening in the moment. And this is the project I need to do and bam, 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 and put this thing out pretty quick. And just unlike the most rudimentary levels, like d- dating your save files and doing all that kind of stuff. And then you learn pretty quickly when you have to answer to a client or you have to answer to, um, a creative, um, like a, like a creative agency where they're still figuring shit out on their end. So the next thing you know, they come back and they go five or six edits ago, there were two shots at the beginning and you're like, Oh fuck, I need to be completely organized about my archiving process. I have to be completely organized about all this. And I found with music videos, I'd get calls back six years later and they'd be like, Hey, can you go back to that cut? And there was this shot and can you grab that? So you're even talking Mm -hmm. about like, like further archiving and where you're putting these things and what drives you storing these things on and how that works too. It's, it's pretty, yeah, pretty yeah. nuts, man. It, it, it just becomes second nature after a while because once you've been burned once, yes, you, you understand. <laughs> I mean, I just worked with Andrew Dominic, who's probably one of the world's most demanding directors and who likes to see every iteration of everything in every shape, form, size, order, Wow. That there can possibly be. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm doing a music video on the side right now. And, yeah, I, you know, I can't say who it is, but it's a big artist. And, um, you know, they, 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 there's issues with the label. And there's like three different versions of the cut going back and forth between the label, the director. And, yeah. you know, after a while, you just, you cannot. You just it just becomes second nature. You, you don't even think about it, and and you know. So it's it. I, I got to say, once once you get outside of the tiny, you know, in tiny tiny indies, mm-hmm. it's not something you really need to think about because everybody works that way. But I, I think the important part, point to pull from this, if you're listening, is that many of you are still in the tiny tiny indie level, um, and if you're teaching yourself uh, good editor hygiene. If you're, oh, right. yeah. you know, yeah. then, um, it's a lot easier for you to be sought after later, especially there's nothing more, there's nothing more powerful than, than having a great assistant editor, a great assistant camera person. And it's really about the meticulous attention to detail that makes those people fucking awesome. 
you know. Yeah, yeah. Really. And they usually don't end up assistant editors long because you love those people. Yeah. And they're diligent and they're organized. And, and you say, well, you know what? She, she was incredible. Why don't we get her a chance to cut something? Because she deserves it. Uh, that's what, <laughs> that's what usually ends up happening. And then it's heartbreaking because then you're like, oh, yeah. no, you're not a good assistant editor anymore. Now you're an editor. Yeah. Now i got to find yeah, another one. It's, it's happened to me a number of times where I've had an amazing assistant editor but I've had to let them go because they're, you know, they've moved on and up and, and then it's, you know, it's tricky to find another one, but yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That organizational stuff, you're right. It is important, but you know, one year out of film school, most people have had that burnt into their brain. So it, you don't need to sort of like dwell on it too much. It's pretty rare. I would say to inherit a project these days that is, you know, terribly unorganized or, it, and if you do, it's it's a disaster. You know, it's a big, and it has happened to me recently. Really? <laughs> yeah, but I can't name names. Of course but, uh, not. Of course not. Yeah, yeah you don't need to. Um, all right, all right. So then, with uh, with you, so let's say that you're going to do. Let's say you're about to cut a. Well, before I get into that question, let's because you've done a bit of everything. So you've done commercials, you've done music videos, you've done uh, feature films. Um, yeah, I guess in the past ten years, I've been pretty much doing independent narrative feature films. But along the way, yeah, started out in documentary. I often do commercials and music videos, things like that. Uh, friends shorts between the features. Mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll sometimes do them without a credit to help help out. Um, uh, make a bit of money, mm -hmm. but yeah, pretty much, pretty much everything now. Yeah. I've even done reality TV, oh a little stint. Oh my God. Yeah. Reality TV. Which is sometimes, you know, I actually am glad I did a, a little bit of it. Um, but, um, because it, it teaches you in some ways raw speed. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Right. For deadlines and all and that. Not, and not to be too precious, but it also does dull the brain in terms of, <laughs> Yes. Although, although no, I don't. I don't want to denigrate that craft because I think that there might be, you know, I know some very talented reality TV editors, and what they do is way, way harder than people understand. Oh no, no, even no, if, for sure. Even if, yeah, but um, I'm just talking in my case. If I work on something like that, it takes me a second to get my brain back in the right space to say, do a feature. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, like I don't want to be de degrading that job either. I mean, yeah. reality TV shows is all editing. That's what it oh, is. It's a hundred percent, a hundred percent made, made in the edit. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And, and that's, that's interesting. Cause that leads me to the next question. Cause I've done both documentary and, and uh, narrative, and I'm curious to see what your thoughts on, are on this, which one do you prefer to do? Because they're completely different processes. Do you agree? I, I would say there's like, you know, the Venn diagram where there's overlap and there's areas that are completely different. I, I will admit that when I had just been doing documentaries for 10 years and I hadn't really got my teeth into narrative stuff, mm -hmm. I and I was young and hot-headed, <laughs> I was like, oh, how hard can it be? You're just choosing between the close-up and the wide. Mm -hmm. And nothing could be further than the truth. Um, the way I like to think about it is when you're doing a documentary, you're trying to make, uh, 
something that's inherently real mm. and and give it sort of a narrative drive and and and, and in in some way make not not make it fictional that's the wrong word but i think you know what i mean you're making a story from something real and when you're doing um narrative fiction everything is fake it's all fake and Mm. there's this tiny little moments of magic where Mm. it feels real yeah yeah and so in narrative it's the other way around you're trying to make something that's a hundred percent fake feel real it's very different what you're doing but but there are huge overlaps, obviously, how to tell a story, how to um, understand what the viewer is experiencing when they watch these disparate things stitched together in a certain order, in a certain rhythm. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they are hugely different. And I've seen editors who have done a load of commercial work mm-hmm. and a load of documentary work. And I've seen their cuts for, for their first narrative fiction. And it's, you know, not good yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Well, you bring up an int- uh, you bring up an interesting point, and it's it's you know as a director, it's what I'm always looking for. I'm always looking for uh, because it's all a lie, right? Like the, from the, from the very beginning, you know, I'm claiming <laughs> I'm claiming to you know know about a bunch of Russians in the 1980s that were, d- were drilling a hole. Like I I don't know shit. Right. I don't know shit about right. that. And so yeah. the process of uh, trying to create that environment is either based on reference materials, but it's all a fucking lie because then you turn you're on set and you look behind the camera and it's all modern and, and it doesn't really exist. And so yeah, as a director, when I'm on set and I'm, trying to decide whether or not I can move on to the next shot. And there are all those outside stresses, like a producer and a location person that are breathing down your neck, like, let's move on. But I'm, mm. I'm looking for that spark. I'm looking for that, that, that little moment, that glint of a moment where I truly believe that I'm, I'm not where I am. Like I'm not, <laughs> I'm not in a warehouse somewhere. Like it's, you, you you're yeah. looking for those moments. And then, I find that it's very difficult. I find them very difficult to find on set sometimes because there is so much periphery. There's so many elements that are trying to distract me from it. Um, And I find it magical when you get into the edit room because, you know, there may be heads and tails and you see an actor like not even in his role, uh, you know, adjusting himself going like, whoa, 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 I fucking believe that there. Like, what? how can we build off of that? Do you feel the same way? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, um, you really have to sort of stay alert to that, um, that stuff. And I, I definitely hear, I know it might sound like I'm trying to be modest, but I'm, I'm absolutely not. I, 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 you know, I'm definitely still learning how to be alive to those things mm-hmm. and i have friends who are much bigger more successful editors than i am so it feels a bit weird for me to talk about it as if i know things <laughs> yeah i get you um, um but yeah that that takes you back to where the assistant editor is so important because if i'm getting distracted every 45 minutes by an issue how am i supposed to sit and peacefully watch the dailies and discuss something with the director without being, without my mind being disturbed. Mm. Like you have to be in the zone Mm -hmm. for some of this stuff and to be able to notice what's good. Um, 
does that answer your i mean it, I, i've gone off to three different topics there but no no dude yeah, it's great i mean like it completely answers the question and th- and then that will stir this this next question with you what is your process like <clears throat> all right so you get you're assembling a scene right and you're assembling um like a sequence like they just shot a scene today like pages like you know fucking 85 to to 90 like a five page scene yeah. or whatever and yeah. so you get that in what is your assembly process are you just assembling the scene quickly based upon what is in the script or do you go through all the footage and find a magical moment and build backwards from that like what's your process putting together a sequence uh yeah it, it does vary slightly from film to film depending on the time pressures the style of the film how well i know the director a million things like that but yeah generally speaking if you're talking narrative fiction first i have a quick look at the scene if i don't read the script i just think about the scene and i ask myself what was the point what was the point of putting it in the script in the first place. Oh, fascinating. Okay. Um, because, you know, you can dive into the footage and you see all this great stuff and you forget that the, the scene doesn't live in a, a vacuum. It exists within the context of the fuller film. <laughs> so I kind of just do a quick mental check-in. I'm like, okay, I'm about to start editing scene 11 where she, uh, you know, sees the guy coming out of the bodega. And I, and I ask myself, what was the point? of this scene being in the script because then if you remind yourself of that then you are alive to things that you might not have remembered are important um obviously you know when an actor is amazing and they give this great look or this great moment you you, you do you're drawn to it but there might be something that feels vaguely mediocre but tells the story better Hmm. um so i'll have that in my mind And then I will quickly scrub through my sort of like reels of the scene to see all all the different setups. Mm -hmm. Um, Because again, that will inform what's important as well. Because each of the shots you're viewing doesn't exist in a vacuum either. Yeah. And then, and then I'll try and watch things down looking for those moments that are, you know, a great on their own, but B more importantly, tell the story of what that scene was supposed to do what what its function was in the first place and from there i'll make you know selects and rough cuts and things like that yeah see that's really cool that's a i'm happy that you brought that up because as a director that's part of the prep process for us so if i'm about to like when i'm breaking down a script in my Mm. prep I'm, i'm asking myself those questions i'm asking myself okay Ultimately, what is the purpose of this scene in the overall narrative? But also, who is the actor when they enter the scene and who do they transform into as they leave the scene? And then how does that propel uh, us into the next scene? And what is the momentum? Like, what is the momentum force? Like, how, where are they coming from and where are they going? You know what yeah. I mean? Or, or even if that, you know, that, that usually does exist in a scene, but even if it doesn't, you know, maybe there's a purpose to the scene that's something else entirely. Um, mm. and, and yeah, you just have to remember it and stay alive to it because I think especially this is going to sound like I'm, um, 
trying to get some woke points, but I think I think boys especially are guilty of um, loving all the tricks and tech stuff you can do, <laughs> and um, getting getting obsessed with the fact that if you cut right at this moment, then the cut is seamless and yes. Uh, uh, I think some of the most successful editors I happen to know are women, and I think that they might be a bit better at staying emotionally attached to what they're watching and uh, not getting distracted by the flashy stuff you I, can do. I would agree with that. I think I think a lot of that comes from youth too, right? Because you get so obsessed, at least with every aspect of this this business, people get obsessed with cameras and gear and how you're shooting things and technically how you're doing things. But yeah, and trying to be clever, you know, trying to do something clever that you, oh, look, look what I managed to do here. I I managed to make a cut here that like saves us eight seconds because you can't tell that when he walked behind this car, you, you know, and you're like, oh, I did all this like fun stuff. And if you're constantly trying to show off in a way, yes you're not going to be watching the material for the what's important. Exactly. Um, exactly. And, and I think, those tricks are important, you know, like having those tricks are important, but I, it's almost like you want to be practicing those things on something else before you get on something important like a film, because you, th those things are the, those are the, the toolbox that you want subconsciously working behind you so that you are using that cheat or that thing to make the emotion yeah. work, to make the, yeah. the, the core of it work. And then you're bragging about the emotion and you're not necessarily bragging about like all the behind yeah. the scenes tricks because it's not as hollow as that, you know? Yeah. I mean, I do say this a lot, but I think that, uh, I say it a lot when I'm chatting with people, you know, just friends and stuff about editing that I almost never, you know, online, you know, if you look about editing online, if you're a young person who's interested in being an editor, everybody who's commenting and writing online is usually young, um, not working on the types of projects that I'm working on. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're obsessed with what they have on their computer and not, and, and there, there's a, there's a ton of, uh, literature online about the technical stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you get a bunch of people making YouTube videos about what makes a great film and what makes a great editor, but you look up their credits and they, they haven't cut shit, yeah. you know? And it's, I just, I worry about like the younger people getting into editing thinking that this is the truth because it's got a million views on YouTube and this guy's a great, you know, great speaker about editing. But the one skill that people really, 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 really need when they're an editor is the ability to watch down a 10 minute sequence or even the whole film and then make a small change and then watch it down again and understand how that change has affected your emotional state you know at minute 43 when some you know change happens so uh, uh, that's the thing that you need to work on developing as an editor like understanding emotional changes mm -hmm. and i don't think anybody talks about that or they don't talk about it very much or if they do they're paying lip service and they don't truly understand what you mean by it well, I think that the, <laughs> let's be let's be real about it. I think that the reason why those videos aren't out there and those videos 
aren't happening for two two reasons. One, uh, there isn't a company that's going to sponsor those. Most companies that are back-end sponsoring all that bullshit are companies that are selling ha- hardware or software yeah, to good, you. Good point. Yeah. yeah. So they don't give a fuck about emotional stuff at all. Yeah. And then yeah. um, the other aspect of it is I've, I've, all, I've laughed about this a lot with all the guests that I've had on the show. <laughs> Filmmaking, film directing, and even editing – it's a social job. And a lot of people that get into this business, or at least when I was younger, so Generation Xers, they're very anti-social people. <laughs> like they're very, they're very locked in a room, dark little cave, Tim Burton style dude that's just like, this is my vision and my art. And they're usually very grumpy and upset that the real that the rest of the world is hindering their art from existing the way that they see it in their mind. Um, and it's something that I suffered from when I was younger. Like I'm an artist, you know, the arrogance that comes with the insecurity of of trying to prove yourself. Um, but at the end of the day, the truth of it is, is it's all about looking around the room and understanding if someone says something, how does that affect the room? If someone's body language is acting a specific way, how does that affect the tone of the conversation? How does this yeah. affect the emotion stuff? And and it's almost psychology to a specific point where you'd be better off studying human response and, and and understanding what a tone, what a noise, what a color, what all these things do to an audience and how it affects an audience. And what happens if you suck away the color automatically? What happens if you have the actor never make eye contact with the person that they're talking to? How does that make the audience feel about that actor? And then if you do have them make contact eye contact after that. Is it refreshing? Is it strange? How do you feel when you see these two shots put together? How do you feel? Not what does it look like? How do you feel? You know? Yeah. And that's really hard. I'm definitely, again, not trying to be modest. I I, I, I 100% mean it. I'm definitely still trying to learn that because when you watch the cut for the 500th time and and this time Mm -hmm. you swapped around scene two with scene 10, how does it make you feel different? I think a lot of people, the answer is they don't know because their brain is t- turned off from it. And that, that for me is like the hardest part of the job to keep your brain alive to yes. those differences. Like I, I, you know, I mentioned Andrew Dominic and uh, for those that don't know, he, he loves to see every possible permutation oh yeah oh that, that's gonna be possible that, permutation that's gonna and he you know he, he taught me a lot actually because you know you'll change one thing in the fifth minute of the film and then you'll you'll try it another way and then watch the whole film again yeah it's gotta be exhausting right because you're you're trying to at least when i'm looking at footage uh I'm trying to uh, not uh, have not become callous to it. There's a, there's a word I'm looking for that I can't find right now, but I'm trying not to yeah. become exhausted by the footage because, you know, mm-hmm. like I'll see something once and have that first reaction that I, I know an audience would have and be like, oh, fuck yeah, that's great. But then by like, you know, uh, time 500 that you see it, you're just like, does this feel, yeah. does this feel right? I don't know if it fucking yeah. feels right, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's tricky because you never, it's not like you, are the editor and you have this rod of truth that you wave around and you, you <laughs> tell the director you, you know, it, it, it's, a, you know, 
that's I think I'll I'll put it this way. You need a bit of modesty to 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 do the job so that you can tell yourself, well, maybe I don't know how this feels. Yeah. But then that but but then that modesty is it's sort of it's a double edged sword, but you, you need it because there are times where you don't know and it's time to take a back seat and listen to what a you know a, somebody who's watched a rough cut is telling you mm-hmm. um or, or the director is telling you that you know the director's probably lived and breathed that film for nine years from the writing to the planning producing and you've just come on and edited for five months you know mm-hmm. so but it's that modesty that is what in a weird way keeps you alive to the idea that what you're watching might have a different impact and therefore you need to pay attention. Does that make sense? There's a, there's a weird. Yes. <clears throat> yes. Function. It's, it's not about being modest for the sake of it. It's like, I'm going to watch this footage modestly so that I'm not, uh, telling it what it is. Right. It's telling me. Right. And it's the same. It, it, I don't know if that's too highfalutin, but no, 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 I mean? no. Cause we're tackling the right stuff. Cause we're talking to the, to the audience here saying, don't focus on the yeah. technical. This is what we're talking about. It's how do you train yeah. yourself? How do you train yourself to be, obviously you're the guiding force of what it is that you're cutting, but how do you step back from that? How do you step up and look from the outside with me? Oftentimes I have a group of people that I'll bring in the edit room at different stages just so that I can vicariously watch it through their eyes. And half the time it's just so I have someone else in the room. I don't even want to hear what they fucking think about it. I'm seeing it differently because I know that they're watching it with me. Um, No, that is a huge, that's a great tip, but it it absolutely works. The minute you have someone sitting next to you, they don't have to say a single thing. You you don't even have to know what they're feeling. It, It, although often you do, but um, you can you suddenly watch your cut with a whole new level of uh, de- attention. Yeah, because and you're realizing, oh, they won't know what that means. I didn't, I didn't put that, you know, explaining shot in. Um, so yeah, there's lots of tricks like that. Getting someone else to sit next to you, uh, taking a walk and watching it fresh, or working on another scene and then coming back to it. But those those are probably all quite obvious things when you think about it. But yeah, they're not though. They're not obvious. I mean, because right. which, what ends up happening is is you get lost in the weeds, right? So like when you're yeah. when you're doing a cut, uh, it's very easy to get lost in the like. Okay, I have to cram all this stuff within the section. I know that uh, by the time I finish this off, we need to understand this about this character, and then. Um, you know, the pacing was kind of weird. Like, uh, on set, we really didn't have our mind wrapped around how fast the sequence needs to be. So if I play it out the long way, it's ensure it does that. But for the pacing of the film, it slows down the next two or three scenes. So how do I speed this pacing up and still maintain that same tone that was in the original pacing of it? So then you get in those fucking weeds where you're, where you're there and you're like, does this still look right? Because you know, it's not right because you've seen what it naturally was. And so yeah. then you become obsessed with the fucking details. And then yeah. like I've been there where you're like, can you tell, can you tell, can you tell? And the person sitting next to you is like, I don't even, I can't tell cause you did a great job, but it still sucks. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. Oh, right. Right. Overall, I fucked yeah. it all up. <laughs> yeah. Let, you know, it happens sometimes. And sometimes your first assembly 
has a kind of honesty to it that's that's useful to go back to. Ah, um, yeah, yeah. But it but it it's really tough, you know. It's re- it's really it's really tough to get that that balance right. everybody i want to take a moment i want to take a little break from our great interview with matthew and uh talk a bit about equipment talk a bit about gear um i know many of you listening to the show are probably over here uh from matthew's account or you may be someone that wants to be an editor someone that wants to get into the business and a big question constantly is what kind of computer should I use? What kind of edit system should I have? I mean, how many of you raise your hands when you start out being an editor, you start by Google searching what edit systems you should have. How many raise your hands uh, start out by going to Apple's website? Like a lot of folks do. And it's really interesting. Like if you've been doing this as long as I have, I understand why Apple became the industry leader when it came to uh, media stuff. I remember back in the day when the you had the old Media 100 machines. A lot of people like, what the fuck is that? Early days of nonlinear editing. Um, and there was a vacancy, right? That Apple slipped right in there and said, hey, guess what? We're going to build specific machines. We're going to build and restrict the hardware specifically so that you can't fuck it up. And we're going to make you these edit machines. They took over the industry for years. The big turning point for me was, was uh, oh my God, how many years ago at, at this point? Over seven years ago, when uh, they turned their backs on Final Cut. Remember? I think this was the release of Final Cut X. And the big problem I had running a post-production studio is that I had years and years of music videos and all these other projects that were archived that my clients would continuously come back to me and ask for re-edits, ask for promo shots, or ask for any of that stuff. And the thing that really fucked me up was when they were like, guess what, our new Final Cut doesn't open or support older programs or older timelines. And I was like, okay, guys, this is it. And it had been boiling before that, right? Because it always felt like... I was in debt with that company. It always felt like they were releasing software updates. I'd be in the middle of an edit and I'd have a software update happen and I couldn't open and play back the same footage that I was doing 10 minutes prior. That used to drive me insane, insane. And then at the end of the day, you can't help but feel like it's a malicious act. You can't help but feel like this is how they make their money because the hardware should last you a long time. If you buy a computer, if you buy a, a, a great computer that can be upgraded and adjusted based upon time, it should last you over 10 years. Over 10 years. You know what I mean? So this whole like fast fashion, this whole fast software, hardware, fast computer, fast technology shit where most of the stuff ends up kicked into the ocean. You know what I mean? I, I just, at that point, I was out. You know, and I'm like, there has to be a better way. What is the deal with PCs? And it was right around then that Adobe was like, guess what? We're going to make it so that you can open all those old projects in Premiere. 
And guess what? We're going to bundle all this stuff together so it all works perfectly because I know you use Photoshop. I know you use After Effects. And here's the kicker. You're going to be able to do it on a PC. It's like, wow, okay, that's great. And then there was that whole period of time where Apple had sort of dominated uh, um, ProRes. And ProRes was the industry standard for delivery. It still kind of is. But it was, it was literally, I think it was licensed by Apple. They had their hands gripped on it. So if you were an editor and you were working on a PC, your clients were asking for delivery on ProRes which was a huge pain in the ass. Back in the early days, I'd be trying to run things out on my laptop. It was a nightmare. Then ProRes became available on PC. Oh my God, how great is that? Then there was a big issue of like, well, look, if I buy PCs for my post house, they have to, I'm sending drives, I'm sending files, I'm sending file formats to the other post houses, which really haven't caught up with how cool we are. <laughs> but how do I get the file formats to exchange between the both of them. Well, there are programs that you can download on your PC that will not only read Mac formatted drives, but will write to Mac formatted drives. So on my PCs that I have here, I have this program so I'm consistently working on Mac formatted drives. So that way, when my less cool buds that are still working on their Macs are like, well, how do you get me files? I can just hand them an external drive that is formatted for them. They could be putting new files on that drive and I bring it right back into my edit system. Super easy. So what does that mean? Well, now that you can build PCs, that means the world is your oyster. That means that you can specifically configure your systems. I'll build these hot rod systems to work specifically for your tasks. Imagine that a tool that is built to do what you needed to do, not a tool that is built so that you don't fuck it up, not a tool that is built in such a way that you have to stay within their parameters. Hey man, this is my world. And here's a fucking rant. As an artist, as someone that is the person or one of the people uh, responsible for coming up with strange new worlds, strange new narratives, strange new ideas, it's supposed to be an open playing field. It's supposed to be a pretty big sandbox for me to kick around in. I already have like money people, I already have studio execs, I already have all these other people putting their fingers in my pudding. You know what I mean? That are coming in there and saying, hey, well, you can't tell this story because it needs to be more appeal. You have to appeal to a larger, broader audience and bum, 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 bum. I already hit, I hear this all day. I don't want to hear this from my tools. I don't want my computer company telling me, uh, you can't, you have to stay within our parameters. The way that this is going to work, don't go into these folders, don't dig through this stuff, uh, work, play by the rules, and this system will work perfectly for you. Fuck that. Can you tell the type of person I am when it comes to that shit? So I got mad, and I said, you know what, I'm going to find... Uh, a great PC. I used to build them when I was a kid, but I was running a post-production company and I didn't want to be tech support. I want to be a director. I don't want to be tech support for all the editors. So I'm like, I got to find a company that builds decent PCs. And I did some research. I was looking around and most companies were building gaming PCs, building computers that look like they should be on the front line of a street race in the Fast and Furious. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so uh, I found this company, Puget Systems. Puget Systems builds custom PCs 
for your needs. So they start with what software are you using? What kind of stuff are you making? We're going to build you a computer that works perfectly for that. And what these guys do is they benchmark test all the different hardware out there. They run it hard. They actually go through the process of being like, hey, is that new expensive graphics card actually going to make it work better in Premiere? Or does that work better when you're doing 3D rendering? Or does that work better when you're in the Unreal Engine? And then which one works best? These guys are such a great resource, even if you're building your own PCs, or if you want to learn a bit more about it, or maybe you're building something else and you want to go to their website and actually hear from a third party what gear works best. And this is what I like about Puget Systems. They're not in bed with manufacturers and they don't manufacture gear. They literally are a bunch of really cool nerds. It's a family of nerds that used to build computers and they are dedicated to building machines that work for you. How awesome is that? They have amazing tech support, amazing customer service. You call them, you talk to a person, you don't do some text to get in a line and then wait for some bot to get, you, get back to you. I love this about Puget Systems. I love these guys. They have supported this show since before I had fans. Think about that. They have been paying to be a sponsor on In Love With The Process since before we had listeners. This is how much they care about art and care about artists. If you want to know more, go to PugetSystems.com. And if you're a new young editor, or even if you're someone that works in a post-production facility and you need support, you need great computers, you want to be uh, in a family of computer builders, of family of nerds, you want to be able to write to somebody and go, there was just software update that happened with the software that I have today. Do you guys have any idea how to fix this? Do you know how to make this work? They're on it consistently. They have relationships with Adobe. They have relationships with Blackmagic. They're consistently checking on these updates and figuring out how to make them work as fast as possible. So to put it plainly, I have two Puget systems right now. There's one behind me that uh, I got over eight years ago that we still use. And I have the one in front of me right now, which is like a beast. 6K, multiple uh, uh, video sequences in Premiere. I love it. So go to PugetSystems.com and see what it is that I rant and rave about every fucking episode of the show. Um, okay, also, because this is an editing show, how many of you editors out there have clients? How many of you editors out there have producers that never put aside enough money for music? There is never enough money to hire a composer, right? <laughs> when does that happen? Especially if you're doing commercials. And as a director, that's incredibly frustrating. And as an editor myself, that's incredibly frustrating because I usually get a client that says, hey, just go to this random stock website and find something there. It's like, have you ever searched through that catalog of shit? Right? It sounds like someone hired a circus monkey and put him on a street with an organ and tried to play Jay-Z. You know what I mean? <laughs> it drives me nuts. And it always has driven me nuts because we spend so much time shooting beautiful footage. I spend a hell of a lot of time trying to pace it out in the edit. And then I schlock down really crappy elevator music from Las Vegas underneath it. It ruins the entire project. So I was incredibly excited when I found Jambox.io. And let me tell you this. If you follow me on Instagram, I'm Mike Petchy. You have seen all the projects that I've done recently, whether it's stuff for myself, whether it's stuff for Gina, 
uh, the EW Boy shoot, the Robert Pattinson shoot, uh, my recent uh, promo for In Love With The Process where I did the pin. All of those pieces look and sound fucking badass. And I know you know this, and I know you feel the same way because you leave me notes and comments on Instagram telling me how fucking awesome they are. It's because I found music and stems from Jambox. Go to jambox.io and listen to their catalog. I'm telling you right now, if you subscribe to them, if you sign up for them, or even if you just do single song licensing with them, it will change your work. It will raise the bar. And if you're someone that is trying to get work from bigger and better clients, the simplicity of it is, is putting in strong music and sound effects that will change everything. So go to jambox.io right now. Check out their subscription plans. They have really great deals. There's a very inexpensive plan for, for people that uh, do podcasts or vlogs. So you guys love how this show sounds. Well, it isn't just Jambox. Of course, I have relationships with amazing synthwave artists, and I love all of you guys. And I've worked with synthwave artists and hired them to compose for me as well. But oftentimes, I'm not going to go to my friends with 40 bucks and say, hey, will you compose a track for this commercial that's going to run on Hulu, right? That's insulting. I would not do that. I'd go to somewhere like Jambox, go through their catalog, find some shit, and it'll sound great. Jambox.io. Do it now. Do it now. Uh, also supporting the show, our friends over at IndiePro. So if you're on the other end of things, let's say you're in production and you're shooting and maybe you're using Blackmagic like I do. I have my Blackmagic Cinema Pro 6, which I shoot everything on these days. Usually 6K RAW, which integrates into Premiere real time on my Puget system, by the way. 6K RAW, which I can then use um, Lumetri and Premiere to do quick grades on real time on my Puget system, by the way. Um, and uh, we also have like our small HD monitors, our wireless stuff from Teradek. I have a little camera rig that's built out on a wooden camera uh, setup. But each and every one of those little accessories have their own batteries, and it's a nightmare. And a lot of those accessories don't come with batteries. <laughs> they don't come with battery chargers. So it's like, well, what the fuck? Right? I get it. You're trying to keep costs down, but batteries and battery chargers, guys, like, why not? I don't understand why they don't. There's always some weird reason, some weird, like, export and import reason that they don't do that kind of stuff. I don't know. Could just be greed. Anyway, um, I found a great battery provider. I needed a power source that I could put on the back of my camera that will run everything. So that way when I'm doing a shot and I have my actors are ready to go, we just rehearsed a bunch and I was leaving my monitor on for preview to see how everything works. We're about to roll and everything goes down or the wireless video goes down. And then I'm trying to like find the fucking thing. No, no, no. Just run it all to one battery plate on the back and throw an Indie Pro battery on the back of it. Why I love Indie Pro, and I'm going to go off script here, why I love these guys is that they build custom power rigs for all the different cameras on the marketplace. And their company is in New York. They're not building these things in China. So you can contact them last minute and say, hey, I've got this strange configuration. Can you guys build me some sort of power rig for this? I'm telling you, they're the shit. Go to IndieProTools.com, use our promo code LOVE20 at checkout, and receive 20% off your entire first order 
from IndieProTools.com. That's the promo code LOVE20 at checkout. Receive that discount. Um, it's the shit. Really is the shit. And let me just be clear with you guys. With sponsors, and if you've listened to the show, you know I talk about this all the time. I find these people. They don't come to me. I find them. So I'm usually looking for a piece of equipment or I love equipment that they do, like companies like Small HD. And I reach out to them and I say, I'd love you guys to be a sponsor on my show because I like your work. And of course, I want to tell all of you about the gear that I use. You've heard me talk with companies like Quasar. They don't pay me anymore, but I'll still tell them. Quasar Science, I love those guys and their lights. Um, any of the companies that I've promoted on the past, Movie Tees, all these places I've, I feel like are important to making your work better because they make my work better, okay? So that's how we do sponsor reads on the show for all you newbies. So if there's a moment where you're like, Mike's trying to make money, I am. Totally am. What, 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 what the fuck, guys? Do you think this shit's for free? Do you think like like paying for all these uh, hosting servers and all those bullshits coming out of my fucking rent money? No! Sponsors, baby. And that's why I'm not charging you yet. All right? So check them out and do me a favor. If you want to support the show, I know you're just listening and scrolling through Instagram. Click the links in the description of this episode. Or go to any of our sponsors' uh, Instagram page. And a lot of you people did that recently to IndiePro. I love you guys. Big shout out to everybody that went to IndiePro and said, hey, I listened to you on In Love With The Process. Thank you for supporting the show. Do that on any of these companies. Let them know that you heard their broadcast or their ad read on our show. What does that do? Well, a lot of these guys pay me quarterly to be sponsors of the show. And some of them pay for the full year. Oh my God, I have the worst acid reflux today. I'm sorry, guys. Some of them pay for the full year, uh, which is great. But then some of them are still like, you know, well, we'll do first quarter. We'll see how it performs in second quarter and third quarter. Do me a favor. Go on over there to their Instagram accounts and say, hey, it's performing fucking killer, man. <laughs> so that way they stick with us all year. You're helping me pay for rent. You're helping the show pay for what it needs to be. And then I can be on this microphone berating you more. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Let's get back to the interview. We were talking about how hard it is to to watch a cutback and make a small change and watch it again and how hard it is Oh, yeah. to understand the emotional impact that the, that, that change is going to have on the audience. But, but basically, the long and the short of it is I was saying that um, that's one of the hardest skills yeah. as an editor, but you, you never hear anyone really talk about it in all these technical places on the internet. Well, the truth of it is that all the, these <laughs> all of these YouTube videos – um, and all of the, these like quietly sponsored videos out there are made by uh, a lot of editors that, uh, or folks that want to be doing that edit, they want to be doing that skill. And the truth of our business right now, whether you're talking about editors, YouTubers that are teaching us about editing or YouTubers that are teaching us about cinematography, 
I call them out all the time. I have some of these folks on the show. I'm like, what have you done? What are you doing? And I get how hard it is to get work right now because our business is so oversaturated. And one of the easy things to do is say, hey, I'm going to do a, uh, in the meantime, I'm going to do a YouTube channel. And next thing you know, that YouTube channel is getting more traffic than any of your work could ever get. And so now you're trying yeah. to bullshit your way through it. This is something as a podcaster that I'm constantly conflicted with. The only reason I feel okay talking to you on this show is I've spent 20 years directing. I've spent 20 years in an edit room and doing the process of all this stuff, there are certain things that I won't talk about on the show because I don't know a fucking thing about them. And if I have somebody on the show to tell me about that stuff, I'm asking them to help with their experience, teach me these things because I don't know shit yeah. about it. I think that's a big problem that we're having right now with content because I have so many young people come to me and go, what YouTube video should I watch? I'm like, you shouldn't watch any fucking YouTube videos. Like go yeah. go and read the original books. Go watch yeah. movies. Like go I, I on get set. It, uh, the, these people, I, I understand because these people are young and they're passionate. But it's uh, they're so young that they that they sometimes don't know what they don't know. It's the Dunning Kruger effect, I think it's called. Yeah, um, where the less you know, the more you think you know. Sometimes, um, but yeah. I understand the passion is there behind it and the interest. Yes. Um, yes. It's just, it's, yeah. it's just misguided. And you know what it is, is I don't think it's as <laughs> the idea of, of, of taking a job and being a runner on its surface value. No one's making YouTube videos about that. Like, you know, uh, here are some skills on how to like get five cups of coffee down the hallway without spilling it all over yourself. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, no one's doing technical videos about that stuff, but what mm. is, what you're missing from that. And that's why I was asking you earlier in the episode I think it's important that we talk about what those jobs actually physically teach us. And more than anything, oftentimes you'll grab like technical skills from that, like being a PA, or you'll grab technical skills about being uh, an assistant's assistant in the edit room. But most importantly, you're looking around and examining people and examining what people do in these jobs, how these jobs affect these people, how the surroundings affect the actual creative outcome of this stuff. There's a lot to be learned in those situations. And it's not as fucking sexy as like, how do you, how do you uh, sync up like five cameras of audio uh, in, in Premiere, but it's more useful to you because then you're sort of getting the tools for the, for the craft that we were kind of talking about, which is like yeah. the emotional context of it all. Yeah. I think people have slightly forgotten because if there's something very specific that you want to learn a very specific thing that in your real world, in your real life, you can't solve, then, you know, YouTube or Google can be great, but I think it's very seductive because you can just sit there in front of your laptop and feel like you're mm -hmm. doing things. And I'm, I've been there myself. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, you'd be way better spending that time helping a, on a friend's, short film or, uh, you know, getting an internship and learning some real world, um, skills and, and personality, you know, learn some, get some, grow a personality by living. Yeah. <laughs> dude. Uh, oftentimes. So I think there are times where you really need to know something specific and, you know, online can be amazing for that, but it can be seductive. 
I mean, and this goes with every aspect of this job, whether it's like storytelling in general, I feel like, like, um, to give you guys uh, context personally, like as a director, it's difficult because you're, you come up with an idea. So right now I'm, I'm working on an action piece and I'm working on an action idea. And there's only so much research that I can do on my computer. There's only so many movies that I can do within that space. And I now am like, I need to go hang out with some stunt choreographers and go watch some classes on how that's actually happening to see how people breathe, how people move. What do they look like when they're exhausted in real life? Because I can sit here and pretend to understand and write that stuff down, but what does it smell like in the room? What does it sound like when a fist hits someone in real life? Like, And you have to go live those personal experiences that aren't like sponsored by some fucking company. And then mm -hmm. there's like some young kid sitting in the room trying to explain to you what a what a punch sound sounds like. And all they're yeah. doing is regurgitating another YouTube video that they saw and reformatting it so that they can get the hits and the sponsors, you know? Yeah. And there's also the difference between intellectually knowing something and then really knowing it in practice. Like uh, the, <laughs> the analogy I often mention actually is, um, you can read about how to bargain, you know, let's say you're traveling to <laughs> India and you want to buy, some stuff from the local market uh, and you can read in a travel guide or an internet guide how you should bargain when you find this lovely rug that you want to take home to your mom and um you, you can think oh yeah i get it i got it i i totally understand you gotta you gotta drive a hard bargain you gotta pretend you don't want it you gotta say this you gotta say that and then you you walk into the market and you get destroyed <laughs> because they they see you coming a mile away. Yeah. The, you know, the, the, it takes real world, world practice to be good at haggling and bargaining. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's the same with everything, pretty much everything you learn on, on the internet, with, you know, with the exception of those very specific technical things you just need to know the answer to right now. But, you know, and anything that you you hear people waxing lyrical about and talking for hours in colorful language, you, you could have, learned it 20 times better by just trying it in the real world yourself. Yeah. Um, so what we're essentially yeah. saying is, is stop listening to the show right now and go to fucking work. That's really yeah. what we're saying. Stop. Well, listen to the show, listen to the show on your way to work. Yeah. Um, in your, and then you'll, then you'll be aware to the things you're looking out for in the rest of your day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, so, uh, the stuff that we're really touching upon that I like is um, finding the emotional core, finding the narrative uh, center, and and finding the reason. I love that, man. Finding the reason why the scene is in this movie. Um, you know what's interesting is that when you think about – when I think about my favorite movies – and when I go back and think about movies that I want to rewatch over and over and over again, personally – rarely does it have anything to do with the plot for me. Rarely. I think at the end of the day, if I'm going to go w watch a movie for the 40th time, it's because of scenes, it's because of tones, it's because of actors, it's because of, you know, how I felt when Bruce Willis was sitting on the sink and pulling glass out of his feet. And the, the, the details that really build the tone for those sequences. And as yeah. a filmmaker, I, I'm conscious of that. I'm trying to be conscious of that now. Where it's like, yes, plot pulls us through, um, 
but it's really about the moments that are happening. And those moments should be affecting the characters and the character development and the character's journey. Mm -hmm. But it's the moments for me. Um, and I oftentimes find myself like moving towards a moment and building a moment, even if it's in the middle of a, of a movie or if it's in the middle, like on my last film, I cut the end of it first and then worked my way backwards because I wanted to prove to myself that it was worth watching. <laughs> so do you, right, yeah. do you find yourself, I mean, of course, when you're doing a larger projects, everything's shot out of sequence and you're just sort of editing what comes in when it comes in, but you find yourself jumping to a sequence to like, like emotionally motivate you to continue? Uh, yeah, sometimes it, it, yeah, it depends on the film. I think, I think you're right. The, the plot stuff has to be there enough so that people aren't scratching their heads and saying, wait, this doesn't make any sense. And I don't know why I'm here, but it, you're right. It takes a back seat once you've, once you've, uh, once you found that, because you, you do need to be emotionally invested. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I think I'm with you in that some of my favorite films aren't necessarily a hundred percent plot driven, mm -hmm. but I, I've been lucky to work on all different kinds of movies. I, I've worked on, you know, uh, family dramas and thrillers and like very sort of quiet character driven study, you know, character studies or, um, you know, uh, I did a horror, a sort of a, a cerebral horror, they call it recently. And um, so they, that, 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 they, those all change how you approach things. But um, yeah, uh, I'm not quite sure what, what the actual question was, but. No, it's it like, the, I guess ultimately what I was asking is, do you find, because you can get lost in the weeds of all of it, right? Especially when there's so much, like features, there's a lot to do. There's a lot of footage. There's a lot of stuff yeah. that you have to sort through. Do you, yeah. do you find yourself like hunting for that emotional response consistently? Are you like, well, I'm going to go watch the scene again because I love this fucking scene. It has to remind me why I'm dredging my way through all of this hard, laborious task work, you know? Mm, there might let me think i'm not sure if there's like a true answer and an honest answer to that i'm not i'm not sure let me just have a little think i think so for for the listeners who maybe don't know on a feature what you're usually doing is what's called keeping up with camera so <laughs> um you know that's quite a challenge in itself um if you're getting you know four or five hours of footage in a day and you're, you're, you, you know, you have to keep cutting the scenes as they come in so that, you know, five or 10 days after the, the film has finished shooting, you've got something to show as a sort of very rough assembly. Mm -hmm. um, so you don't have too much luxury to sit around and be like, oh, I love that scene. Let's go and tweak that one again. Um, but I guess you're right in that in a, some small way, you know, you might have a scene that's that has no dialogue and the character is, I don't know, let's say staking out a diner, you know, and just sitting there and watching and, you know, and that, you know, you might know that that's a wanna. Mm -hmm. You might know that there's not going to be any cutting involved and it's going to be about choosing the best of nine wanners, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that could be daunting in a way. 
because you in in a way you know what the ch- the challenge is and it's it's a very it, it's a the difference between take seven and take nine might be so minuscule it's hard to spot and that can be a bit scary so you might go and jump into the more exciting scene first let's say which is a fast-paced dialogue scene or something mm-hmm. um and then you might say well i'll come back to it and i'll choose that that long one later for now i'll just pick the first one that that's you know after watching them all i'll just go with my gut plop one in um so there's that element if that answers your question sometimes things are so simple or or not simple but they're so uh, you know, it, it's it's like choosing a oneer. It's 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 simple on the face of it, but yet so hard. Yeah, um, yeah because you can't so, use you can't use any of yeah. your you can't use any of your editing tricks on that. Like you, at that absolutely po- exactly. So yeah. you know, and you know that you and the director are going to be going back and forth on that nine, you know, a hundred times. <laughs> So yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, something like that, I might get a bit scared of for a second, yeah. and I'll 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 just go with my gut, pick one, and then I'll jump into the more you know, that's something that's more challenging in other ways. Yeah. Because the simplicity of picking that one is a bit terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't mean literally terrifying, but you know what I mean? No, no, no. uh, But yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Does that answer your question? There's sometimes there's in a small way, but usually you're so busy that you can't, you can't uh, spend too much time tweaking and replaying an edit that you really like. Yeah. And you know, you, it makes a lot of sense when you're talking about keeping up with the camera and you're keeping up with the schedule on a feature. Um, I guess I, sh- yeah, you know, when I think about it, I guess I was thinking more short form, like, especially mm. when you're doing, uh, like music videos, Oh, music videos. I spent so many years editing music videos. I still edit music videos. Um, and it can be a real grind sometimes, especially if there's like a lot of performance stuff in there. And I find that when I cut for some folks, uh, like my like Gina, when I cut for Gina in the beginning, uh, she was always incredibly precious about footage, and she would want to go through all the footage, and she would want to look at all the footage, and I'd say, just walk away and, mm-hmm. and let me lay this down. Let me just lay out what the pacing of it is. And I would just go mm-hmm. through and start to build structure with takes that I knew that I'd be swapping out later. It's just like... Let me throw this in here. Let me throw this in here because I need to see the bones of this. I need to see what the structure is. I need to see the overall pace of what this thing's going to be. And then I'd show her a rough cut. She's like, I just don't like the way that the characters. I'm like, of course, we're going to swap these out, but the pacing's down. So now we can go through there and really sort of pick the exact moment of how long her eyes are looking at that person before she looks away or how many, how many strums do we have? And do I cut on the beat of the drum or do I cut on the low strum of a bass? We'll we'll get into that. But oftentimes I feel like I need to just almost lay out. It's like if you're building an old electric train track, you have to lay out all the fucking pieces and just sort of slap them together to see how that curve is going to work. And they go, okay, yeah, yeah, we'll fucking iron it out as we get into the next stage. You know what I mean? Yes, I think certain types of projects can really benefit from that. Um, and maybe music videos is one where you can really, you just need to see a shape, a version, before you can get too into the weeds. Yeah. And probably with the music video, there's not a lot of sound work to yeah. worry about because you're cutting along to um, music. And, and in some in some ways, your job's a little uh not not easier but 
more direct. Yes. And so yeah, yeah. I, I think sometimes there's benefit to that. On a feature, it can be a bit dangerous because I think that every time you're exposing yourself to a scene and getting into it, you're 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 getting further down the path of deadening yourself. So mm-hmm. the my my feeling for a scene and a feature is you sort of cut it quickly and robustly and thoughtfully and without distractions and get it where you think this is good and make it good and then move on. Mm. Uh, And then it's not so much a question of like, Oh, sometimes it is a question of swapping out a take, but it's usually more of a question of, is this scene overall communicating what we want it to communicate? And it, it might be at first and then you see the whole movie and you realize you want it to do something else right. entirely. And you might say, you know what, we're going to take out all the dialogue from this scene, every single line. And we're just going to have them looking at each other and we're going to put music under it and join it to this scene. And then it's going to create this whole new feeling that we now realize we need having watched the whole movie. Um, <laughs> it's- so, yeah, it, it's a different, it, oftentimes it really does depend on what you're cutting the approach you take. Um, if it's a moment in a movie that is a little bit like a music video, you know, it could, it could be, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good example. What's that movie? Oh yeah. Like a movie like drive. Mm-hmm. There's a moment where the two main characters essentially fall in love and that becomes a kind of a music video there there's no dialogue they go for a drive with their kid her kid and you know i could imagine if i was assembling that scene i would assemble it and prepare for it very differently than i would most of the other scenes in the movie Mm. um you know so yeah sometimes you're really doing a different approach depending on the material i love the you know it's like we're getting a glimmer like a glimpse into sort of your processes, which, which is really fascinating. And it must be nice to start to have built like these processes for you where you're like, I can only look at this a certain way and I don't want to deaden myself to this. And here's my steps for doing this. And do you, do you find comfort in the fact that you're sort of giving yourself these rhythms and, and and no, because every time I start a new film, I get my ass handed to me because (laughs) you, you think you know everything and you're like, okay, I've, I, I've, uh, you know, it's just, editing is just this incredibly steep learning curve and it go and it's steep and long somehow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you know, I don't know how many features I've cut now, maybe like eight or something. If you're talking like full features that I've cut myself mm-hmm. and yeah, there's just been times where it's just like, I've ne- I don't know. You know, it sometimes it really smacks you around the face, and you're like, "Ah, oh, <laughs> this is this is this is a new one. I don't know how to approach this." You know, so I feel like a- any time you get too confident as an editor, mm-hmm. and you start to sit back and sort of like, "Ah, I've got this." You know. Oh, so sorry, my doorbell. Of course. No, no, no. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just play that bit again. Um, anytime you sort of sit back as an editor and start to tell yourself, oh, "I, I've got this. I know what I'm doing." That's when you're going to do your worst yeah. editing. So I wouldn't say that it's a comfort. I'm sorry, buddy. Hold on a second. No, no, no. We can pause. We can pause. Sorry, I had to knock. Francis, Yep. 
Very aggressive FedEx guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just doing my job, man. Yeah, sorry um, about that. Jesus. Yeah, no, he, he, he was keen, but uh, I get it. He's on the clock. He's on the clock, just like us editors are. Um, yeah. But what were we saying? Oh, yeah. I, was, I think I was saying that the moment you start to feel like you know everything, mm-hmm. you lose that modesty that I was talking about yeah earlier and and that's when you are not going to be alive to what is happening in the footage and that is when you're going to uh, and i see this a lot actually with with maybe junior editors where you know they've been cutting uh let's say commercials or music videos a lot and you can tell they're cutting their first narrative scenes and they're they're doing the same thing they're cutting on action and they're cutting on they're you know that they've fallen into a habit rather than retaining that modesty mm-hmm. of watching what they're watching and seeing what that needs. I've caught myself doing it my, you know, as well. Yeah. Uh, maybe if I haven't cut a feature for a while, my first couple of days, I'll be falling into some habit of what I've been cutting recently. Yeah. I mean, luckily I'm mostly cutting features these days, so I don't, I don't tend to, to get so dragged away from it, but, um, I've, I've definitely seen that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause it's, I mean, technically you have the same skills across the board, you know, like, like how do you mm. cut for time and how do you make these shots work and how do you try to get the continuity to work correctly? But it really is different skills and, 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 and different mindsets, emotional mindsets mm-hmm. for you between cutting commercials and between cutting music videos and between cutting features. It's really a different, yeah different game but you're right you're right though to go back to the to the your earlier question that if i find any comfort in having developed those tools uh, i i definitely you know i just wanted to start with that thing of like yeah if you have too much comfort and think you know everything you're you're fucked yeah. but <laughs> yeah but you're right there is a certain there is a certain comfort from that long sort of difficult learning learning curve i i, I can never because i can't see inside other people's heads i, I can't just tell whether <laughs> i'm bad at editing and it's taken me a long time to get there or <laughs> whether some people are just like naturally gifted um yeah but i think everybody i think it's a, everybody's there is a, sometimes a comfort yeah i think everybody's naturally gifted in in hindsight you know what i mean like, like this, yeah. you know the whole bit yeah. like this person's a genius it's like well, you're just processing something that they did and half the time that you're giving a credit to a director yeah. or giving credit to an editor it's because they repaired their mistakes and in the repair yeah. of that mistake they made something amazing that they can then go back on and go, well, I had this idea. <laughs> and you're like, no, you yeah, didn't. No, yeah. you, no, you didn't. <laughs> well, that's the comfort you do get, actually. You know, when you've, when you've only cut a film or two, it can be incredibly daunting. And there can be things about the movie that just are not working. And the solution might not be immediately apparent. And you might start to think like, oh, my God, this is this movie's fucked, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> but as you get a bit more experience, the comfort comes from knowing that this is just part of it. And yeah, maybe there's a scene that didn't work out as planned on the page, but actually you may later discover that it brings something magnificent to the movie. 
yeah. that you would have never found if you hadn't have had that restriction. And so I think the comfort comes from having had all these problems. Basically, you know, editing is problem solving. Yeah. And just taking that terror away and knowing that, oh, yeah, I've, I've, I've worked before on movies where an actor was terrible or the camera work was tricky or a scene didn't work out as planned and it doesn't mean the movie's going to fail and there may be some beauty in it that I can pull out and it may lead to some other discovery that's absolutely fantastic. And so, yeah, that's the comfort Mm. if that's if that's asking your answering your question yeah no totally dude and yeah i feel that too like there are many times where i'll sit down with somebody uh, like it's harder when it's your work like if you've if if you've directed it and you're sitting down to edit it the disconnect it took me a long time to get to the point where i can just go like it's okay buddy it's okay it's like <laughs> it's, it's emotional management at that point where you're like it's fine there's so many things you can do in the edit it's gonna be fine um, but when you're sitting down with someone on the outside, I like being that person where it's just like, you've got a lot of stuff here. It may not be what you saw in your head, but we're going to find something really pretty and we're going to find something really beautiful through this process. Um, and just, yeah. just sit back and relax and let us, let us find this process together. And if you're in trouble, I'll tell you you're in trouble, but yeah. let, let's get to the point where we figure out that you're in trouble. There's a lot of shit that we can do before we're in trouble. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it can feel quite depressing, especially for first time directors. Yeah. Um, not, not that they don't know what they're doing at all, but I, I think that pretty much most first time directors I've worked with, there's been a point, there's been a point around, you know, month three <laughs> of a five month edit where they start to feel like, Oh shit. <laughs> I've made I've made a movie that's never going to work. And um that's a pretty good moment to step in there and reassure them that this is actually even the big directors, you know, the Paul Thomas Andersons and the you know whoever. They go through this too when they're trying to find the beginning of the movie or trying to uh you know make something clear or trying to make their original idea come to life, whatever it is. Um, yeah, it can be really hard. And I don't think a lot of people understand that till they get in the editing room. Mm -hmm. Um, the beginning of a movie specifically incredibly hard, Yeah, incredibly hard when you're watching a movie that works and the beginning works, it just seems so effortless. I think if people knew how tricky it was to get all that information across, but also be clear, but also not be boring and also not be too slow <laughs> and keep the movie going and introduce all the characters and get, you know, that's, it's phenomenally difficult. So uh, you'll often have a problem with the beginning of the film and you'll often be trying to find that, that beginning of the film right up until the very last week of editing. Yeah. And I think, first time directors are often really savaged by that. They're really savaged. They feel like they're a failure, but then once they, once they get onto their second movie and once they've had a bit more experience, they realize, Oh, this is part of it. it it's the magic of movie making and the difference of going from a script to on set to the edit is each time the film really does ch change. And the funny thing is all these directors, they, they talk about it before they do it. And they talk about it as if they know that that's the truth. <laughs> but when it happens to them, 
it's that it's going back to that thing that I said. It's like the difference between understanding something intellectually and understanding it in practice. Yeah, huge, huge. So you know, you'll speak to most directors who have done a few shorts and they'll talk all day about killing their darlings and about how tricky it is. And then they'll do their first feature and they'll be crushed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Dude, I'll, you know, I'm, I'm going to be crushed. So like, I, I, I get it. Like it's, yeah, I, it, it's fascinating. You know, what really has helped me, um, uh, keep my head in the game as far as that's concerned. One of the benefits of being out here in California is that you can go to advanced cuts of movies and so i'm on a list where i can go and see films ahead of time so i saw like batman five months before it came out i saw right. like uh the northman five months before it came out and it was uh interesting to see their temp sequences to see the footage without the polish to see them trying to arrange these things oh, yeah. it's fascinating and you watch it you just go yeah. oh these guys don't know what the fuck they're doing either okay good all right, great. Yeah, it's it's a finding. It's funny, actually. I, I, I'm good friends with Louise Ford, who's kind of a mentor of mine in some ways. We we have we're, we're we both are on the same agency, mm-hmm. and um, obviously she's far far more experienced and talented than I am. But um, you you know, I, I know some of the secrets and backstory of that one too and and yeah editors have to and directors have to go through yeah all kinds of changes and you know and, and often the more money that's involved the more um oh yeah i can imagine the more of those complex things you're having to factor in yeah uh, and it can be very hard i think lou worked on that movie for something like 14 months jesus um um but yeah i i won't speak for her because she knows i i i wouldn't know what that's like you know i've worked on i've never worked on anything of that size yeah um which i have to stress again you know i'm here i feel a bit silly i'm on a podcast you've you've thankful you've kindly had me on but the truth of it is i i've cut you know seven or eight very indie movies you know sub three million dollar movies um but you do you're doing fantastic work you got got somebody like louise ford who's just cut a 70 to 90 million dollar movie and i you know i wouldn't begin to understand the levels of um yeah you know exec producer studio into you know it's a whole new thing that i actually haven't had experience in and in fact you know i was talking to my agent the other day about this if i if I worked with a director on his first feature and it was like a $3 million feature. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for whatever reason, he got to cut a 100, he got to direct a $100 million feature next. You know, let's say he blew up like a, like a Chloe Zhao or whatever. I probably wouldn't be allowed to be his editor because I wouldn't have had that experience of going through this whole different beast. And that, that's where I, come back to this thing of like having that modesty of knowing what you don't know. Yeah. And I, w- I wouldn't n- know the hell that <laughs> Louise and, and the director went through on that, that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, but, but see what's fascinating for all of you, those of you listening is that we're not talking about the differences in the, the, the technical skills that you're needed as an editor. You're not, we're not talking about the differences in the storytelling skills that you need. We're talking about like the, the, the human 
uh, connection, the human conversations, the human politics. We're talking about the, the, that other aspect of being an editor, which is dealing with human beings and going through the process of this stuff. And and I've heard stories about the stresses on larger on larger films. And oh yeah, uh, I mean it's you know on those larger films, it's it's a business. Yeah, that you know. It, it's different from a little $2 million movie where you sell the rights in Europe and you get your money back. Yeah. You're talking, you're talking a whole different level of stress and, you know, often people get replaced and fired on the whim, on the whim of an ex of an exec producer who just thinks, I don't want to take this risk with my money. Yeah. I want somebody who's more experienced or, or, you know, Luckily, I haven't had to deal with this, but I've heard about it on other films where, yes, you have a fantastic editor, fantastic award-winning editor who's now working on a huge movie and somebody up top, you know, in the money department will say, you know what, just for safety, I think I'll bring on my huge blockbuster editor and replace this one, uh, you know, because I just want to have a more experienced eyes on it. <laughs> and I can kind of understand that because there's a hundred million dollars on the line. Uh, more if you turn, you know, if, if you're talking about a successful movie that might make many, many times its budget yeah, uh, or, or lose or lose it. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, I, I, I saw, there was a piece that I saw some behind the scenes material and it was, oh, it was an interview with like Michael Bay's editors <laughs> and, right. and the, the nightmare that those guys go through. I think it, and I may be I may be misquoting this, but I think he was talking about to how he's got three editors, and and Bay will just pull scenes from them and swap scenes and swap them in different edit bays because he's a, yeah. he's intentionally trying to get rid of their taste and keep his yeah. own taste. It's crazy. I must say, yeah, I, I know that Terry Malick works like that too with several editors, and I must say that it doesn't really appeal to me too much. I, <laughs> I, I really love when I can gradually over time create a connection with a director where we understand and appreciate each other's tastes and therefore use each other as a, as a tool, yes. a helpful tool. And... Um, yeah, I did go and see Ambulance, a Michael Bay movie, with uh, our mutual friend, Eduardo Vitaletti, who, who was the director of one of my recent movies. And uh, it kind of was a laughable joke in some ways. Uh -huh. I mean, very, very amazing in other ways. Um, oh, yeah. You know, for that type of movie. But, you know, there's like random drone shots <laughs> as it flies between people's legs and up the side of a building and... I'm, I'm sure it was right for that movie and right for his taste, you know. Um, but and now, and now I'm talking myself out of the next Transformers video. But uh, but, but, <laughs> but also, like, there's a quote from him or a quote from one of his producers that was like, mm -hmm. uh, "Bay had said to them, and I love Bay. I, we just talked about it. I had Peter Stormare on the show, and we were talking about Bay stuff. I love his stuff." But, yeah, no, he has done some phenomenally good stuff. Yeah. And that's the thing. But, I mean, with the drone stuff, supposedly the quote was that uh, he was like, find me the hottest new tech thing. And so this producer was like, drone guys. <laughs> that's the thing. I could tell. Yeah. I could tell watching the movie that he had seen or someone had seen those Instagram uh, videos of some 17 year old person flying a tiny drone through tiny spaces. Yeah. And I could tell someone had got excited by that 
and brought it into the movie in a big way. And, and maybe that was right for the audience, you know, for the type that the audience, but for me, I, I felt like, well, how does this relate to the story that they're trying to tell, which is that criminals are on the run and they're trying to escape in an ambulance and use, use a dying person as a shield. Yeah. You know, where, where does that tie in, you know, that visual language? And I guess I'm maybe a little more old fashioned and maybe, maybe Michael Bay deserves some credit for understanding what, you know, the youth want, but well, I'm, I'm well, getting a bit old. So, you well, know, maybe I'm not I, I, Dude, don't, don't, don't do that. <laughs> I don't think that's necessarily, <laughs> don't do that. I think that the credit that I give the, the reason I love Michael Bay movies and the credit that I give him is that he's always pushing technical stuff. He's always pushing technique, uh, incredibly hard and there have been a lot of people that have tried to do michael bay a lot of people that try to do it and they just don't have it they don't have his like strange parallax and camera move stuff and his like all the stuff that i love about a michael bay movie and he's I, i mean the transformers movies love him or hate him i love the sound design in those movies and i love the technical stuff from the sound design and whenever i'm putting together a movie, I'm always referencing something that he does. And it's a dangerous thing to do if you're putting together a pitch kit or something and you're like, I want to talk about some Michael Bay stuff because then immediately people are like, well, I don't like the way, but there's a lot of negativity that comes with that. But it's like, no, 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 no. Like I love the way he does um, moving bounce light on his actors to make that energetic. And I like the way that this Mm -hmm. happens here. And so the, the thing I love about Bay is I feel like I'm walking into a toy store when I go see one of his movies. And at first glance, there's too many toys. There's too many fucking things on the shelves. And you're like, oh my God. Mm-hmm. But if you get in there specifically, you're like, that would be a really cool technique to use emotionally correctly. And this yeah. would have been interesting if it wasn't cut 50 fucking times in a breath. That would have been really fun to use as a tool for this. Isn't that the great thing about movies? Like I I might not love all of a certain director's movies, but I'm so glad they exist. Yes. You know? Yes. Like I'm pretty sure that some of my favorite movies are rated, you know, 43% on Rotten Tomatoes. (laughs) They weren't made for everybody. Yeah. They weren't made, you know, Uh, with everybody in mind you know like Jonathan Glazer is one of my favorite directors you know many people's and you know he did a film called Birth and I think Mm -hmm. you know it got absolutely destroyed when it came out and but it's incredible movie Um, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter to me that half the people out there don't like it and I'm sure Michael Bay couldn't give a shit whether or not I liked Ambulance (laughs) I'm so glad I'm sure, you know, I'm so glad it, it exists. Me too. And th- and that there's room for, you know, everybody from Noah Baumbach to Michael Bay to, you know, Eduardo Vitaletti to whoever. Yeah. So yeah. it's like cool. And that's what keeps the job interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And- because, yeah, you, you'll, you'll be working on some trippy, no plot, experiential thing one minute and then a sort of like Bergman-esque slow, <laughs> you know, a black and white thing, the next. And then, you know, I, I, I even went back to doing this documentary thing for the Nick Cave 
documentary recently for Andrew Dominic and it's just everything feels fresh as long you're as long as you're not working in an environment where people are just treating it like money yeah. like a commodity that's the hard part yeah is that commodity yeah. and and you know you feel that hard in advertising you know and in commercial work where you feel like people are just hiring you for a trick or a gimmick oftentimes especially as a director where like you know i always say that I'll put something out that's a personal project or I'll put something out that's a passion project. And then three years later, commercial clients will come to me and go, that new thing you're doing, we'd like to buy that, you know? And, and so then you're, you're going, right. going through the process of trying to, you know, replicate something that you were passionate about three years prior. And so, uh, that's the, that's the business side of this, this industry. And you even feel it in movie stuff. I was talking about the new Dr. Strange movie and, and I love Sam Raimi. Like, Sam, like you got me in there because it was Sam Raimi doing it. And you just watch that movie and you can't help but think that the execs were like, hey, there's like a scary book in this movie. So let's get the guy that does all the scary book stuff. And then come on in here and do that scary book shit that you do. And you're like, ah, right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's something you got, you, you sometimes you just got to take the rough with the smooth, I guess. I've, I've definitely um, worked on commercials where, uh, I'm just a pair of hands and there's 15 people on a, a video call in LA mm-hmm. simultaneously driving the edit. And that, you know, that's fine because you sort of try and remind yourself that you're getting paid to give somebody who's paying you what they, what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but it's much nicer when you have a collaborative friendship yeah. and you feel, and you feel, like you have some input because we all want to feel wanted at the end of the day. We all want to feel needed. I think that's what it boils down to. But uh, yeah, it's it, sometimes sometimes the job is hell, and sometimes the job I feel like wow, I get to do this as my job. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And those are the moments that you're striving for. I, I was I was just explaining. I was in a pitch meeting. And I was explaining it last week, and I <laughs> and I said to the execs, I said to the execs, I was like, guys. There have been moments in my my career that I've stood on set and I've had the wherewithal to step out of my body and look around and see how the people are around me, how the people are enjoying what it is that we're doing. And I, there's a pure sense of bliss. There's a pure sense of, of, of just straight happiness that I have had at that point. It's like doing crack for the first time. Okay. So then, so then I know at that moment that I'm doing crack and I love crack. And now I go back Mm -hmm. out into the world where there's no more crack left. And I'm begging you like a, like an addict to inject that crack back into my veins. And I feel like that's what the life of a director is, is that you're like, I, I've been there. I know how good this can be. I know how great this, this life can be creating this stuff and finding these things and being in that edit room and finding those moments and, you know, and drinking yeah. beers and it, super excited about making this process. Please, 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 please let me do it again. And that's yeah, yeah. what our job is. is it's just the yeah. consistent abusive relationship <laughs> of, yeah. of begging. Like, please. I've definitely heard, I've definitely heard something along those lines from, from many directors I've worked with that, you know, they just feel so happy when they're on set doing it because then all the stresses of pre-production and yes, you know, even if they're losing so much, you know, I worked for a director that he, he lost so much weight during the shoot that his wedding ring fell off, but, you know, and <laughs> I don't think people understand how stressful it is, but 
at the same time, you know, you feel really alive when you're connected to this juggernaut and you're, you're, you're driving it at a hundred miles an hour and you're at the helm and there's a whole team helping you. And, you know, you can imagine how that feels. Um, uh, as an editor, you're, you're, you're sort of training yourself almost the opposite because it's like the least glamorous part of movie making, you know, there'll be times where I'm, in an edit with someone famous, but even then you don't really realize till afterwards because right. you're just doing a job. So if I'm sitting with Olivia Wilde working on the edit of her movie, or if I'm, you know, sitting with Nick cave or whoever, um, I, you don't really think it's not a glamorous job editing. Yeah. And in a way I kind of like that. <laughs> It's like nobody, nobody asks the editor what they think on the DVD extras. Nobody remembers who the editor is. Yeah, you know they just remember the director's name. Um, everybody thinks the actors are great when they maybe weren't, and it's kind of fun because <laughs> the producers know. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's something I'll say to like. Um, editors starting out often including myself i was like obsessed with getting the right credit for the work that i'd done Mm -hmm. and then there came a point where i realized oh no no it doesn't matter do a really fucking good job and those producers will say holy shit matthew was incredible and every time they get asked by another producer who should i hire yeah your name will come up whereas you can be a complete d-bag and insist on the biggest credit which you know sometimes that is important to do if you're in danger for example of not getting the full credit for work that you actually did yes but um by and large especially when you're starting out don't obsess on the credit and being being hollywood being all you know that kind of crack as you were saying this of, of the sort of like i'm an important filmmaker you know as an editor you have to kind of turn that off a little bit yeah which is weird but um i've directed things too and I, kn- I know what you mean it's it's so exciting to be surrounded by that team and that that kind of we're doing it spirit but it's like being on set it's like a sprint yeah and it, yes it has that kind of glory of a sprint whereas the edit is a slow kind of boring hard work (laughs) you know you know what i was visualizing (laughs) while we're talking about it mad max fury road the sequence in which uh charlie's there and furiosa turns off the road in the beginning and she's driving and she's got the guy hanging on the side of the truck he's like what's wrong and they're doing this whole run from those like cars (laughs) those spiky vehicles and she's directing and she's just running this thing and it's this huge truck and she's trying to get to where it is and then you cut back inside (laughs) you cut back inside the, the the bad guy lair and there's the little the little tiny guy looking through the periscope going, what's wrong with dad? It's like, that's the editor. <laughs> I, I see what you're doing here. You're likening me to a little gremlin gobliny, oily, greasy monkey. There and, it is. Uh, you're 100% correct. <laughs> yeah, man. That was what came to mind, dude. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Matthew, I, we should end this, man. This has been fucking fantastic. It's a great conversation um thank you for sharing so much 
about the well, crap. Well, thanks for having me on. I, 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 I get me on again when I've when I've cut uh, some bigger movies. Yes, and uh, maybe I'll have a different story for you. I'm down, dude. I'm down if you're down, man. All right, thank you so much, and uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing more of your episodes on on all the subjects. Actually, oh well, thanks for listening, dude. I appreciate that. All right. So there it is. Today's episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, I had a lot of fun talking to Matthew. I like to get in the weeds um, on uh, these different job titles uh, and these different aspects of uh, storytelling and movie making. And I can't say this loud enough that uh, movies are made in the edit room. They really are. Uh, Everything prior to the edit room is just trying to get as much as you possibly can to play with. Uh, in the edit um, and uh, it's a sacred place and I'm, I'm happy that uh, Matthew really addressed an issue that I feel like uh, so many of you that listen to this show may get lost in which is like these YouTube videos the the obsession with specific techniques this the obsession with uh, transitions the obsession with uh, uh, filters and plugins and overlays and all these, the, if if we're talking about a full meal, you guys are getting obsessed over the napkins and the paper plates. You know what I'm saying? Um, and the thing that's very hard to visualize, the thing that's very hard to explain is emotion and registering emotion and living with an emotion and, and existing with it and then harnessing emotion and then being teaching yourself to be empathetic uh, to those that see your stuff, that watch your stuff, uh, and to understand what a specific shot, what uh, a specific look, what a sound will evoke out of a majority of the people that watch it. Not all people that watch it, by the way, which is also very important. It, it's also fascinating to see something that you feel like will work, not work. And why it doesn't work today may be directly affected to what's going on in the world, what's going on socially. It could just be as micro as what happened to that group of test audience members as they walked across the lot to the theater. Uh, Who was the person that ushered them in? How did they get prepped when they sat in that theater? Did the lights go down the right way? Did the projectors stall? Right? It's so fascinating, all of these outside elements that affect your work. And I'm not saying as an editor you need to be aware of all those different things, but you should be conscious of how an audience feels. And there are a lot of uh, filmmakers, there are a lot of people that make movies that are uh, constantly saying things like, I can't watch it with an audience. I think you're handicapping yourself at that point because why are you making <laughs> Why are you doing this? Are you making it for yourself? And if you are just making it for yourself, and there's a piece of that that should be there, but if you are ultimately just making this stuff for yourself, find a cheaper way to do it. Find a way that doesn't require as much money, doesn't require as many people, um, and then you can do that to your heart's content, right? Um, But if you're working on something larger, if you're working on something that requires resources, if you're working on something that requires a community, built around you that all need to be fed, that all need to be paid. Um, you really need to be conscious of the people that are paying for it. You have to be conscious of how these folks react to these things. 
Um, and it's not just commerce, man. It's it's the experience that you're trying to build and tell. And, you know, the skills that we're talking about can be, I can give you some homework. They can be practiced simply and cheaply and inexpensively. Tell stories to your friends. Go out for beers, have people over, and tell them a story. Tell them something that happened to you when you were a kid. Tell them about a moment in your life that is incredibly emotional. Tell them about what happened to you on the way to their place. But examine them. Take your time. How many folks out there, and I know because I've been there, how many folks out there want to just talk when they get into a conversation, want to just get it out as fast as they can. I've got friends that don't know pacing when they tell stories. I have friends that will long-windedly take you through a tale and not read the room. I've been with friends that are telling a story and I can't help myself. I try to inject myself in to give them hints and clues to the fact that you're putting your audience to sleep or to the fact that I know what you emotionally are feeling here, but you're phrasing it the wrong way and it's rubbing the audience the wrong way. And so they're not actually listening to the core element of the story. The reason you wanted to do it in the first place, talk to people, tell stories, communicate with people, listen to other people's stories. When you listen to someone's story, look at how everybody else is responding to it. How do they respond to pauses? How do they respond to the voice changes? How do they respond based upon the storyteller's body posture? Do you respond differently when I turn full shoulder to you? Do you listen differently if I'm talking over my shoulder to you? All these things are the skills that you need, not only to cut a great scene, but also interact with the people in the edit room with you. Emotion body language, communication, pacing, and then having the ability to train yourself to stay fresh, to give yourself rhythms, to give yourself uh, routines that keep you from becoming calloused by the footage. That's the hardest thing in the world. I can't help but think of a visual when we talk about an editor, and I felt this way as an editor, it feels like that part in Clockwork Orange where our lead character has his eyes held open and he's staring at screens and he's staring at all this random, horrific and strange footage over and over and over again. Hours and hours, his eyes are glued on this stuff. And then after that stuff, it's like he has to turn and tell a kid uh, how to how to fucking cook an egg. You know what I mean? Or I has to turn and tell the kid um, how to survive bullying. Right? Or tell the kid what it's like to fall in love for the first time. Or tell somebody what it's like to get over love for the first time after having their eyes glued to this for hours and hours and hours. When I do an edit, uh, I come out of the back end of it feeling like a crazy person. And like I speak like a crazy person, I'm quoting moments in it, I'm quoting sounds in it, and I have to unwind. I can't just go right to bed after I'm cutting. I have to like bring my brain down and bring myself down. It's torture. It really is. 
and I'm, I don't want to make it into something more lofty than the job is, but it's, it's mental torture to edit stuff. And so how do you go through this process of looking at things and obsessing of things and looking at things and obsessing? And how do you stay consistent with, with the emotion of the scene? How do you stay on point with the audience? I wish that there was some filter. <laughs> I wish there was some app that I could use that would just turn on and off audience brain for me. You know, when I watch it, like be able to erase the fact that I've, I know exactly what's going to happen at every inch and ounce of this next five seconds, because I've seen it 5,000 times. Can I just erase that from my mind and then watch it again? That's the crazy stuff about editing. That's the wild world of being an editor, at least in my opinion. Um, and I hope you guys learned a lot from Matt. I, I, he's so many great things. His movies are fucking great. I know we didn't talk much about the individual films, but head on over to his website. That's MatthewCart.com and look at his list of stuff. Um, I've said it already on the show. I'm pumped about this Nick Cave one. I haven't seen this yet. I'm excited about it. Um, thanks for listening, everybody. Lots of new episodes on the way. Lots of great guests. Lots of good stuff to talk about. Thank you for supporting us. Thank you to the musicians that give us the music for these shows. Um, and thank you for all the guests. Love you guys. Um, and uh, like I said, keep following me on Instagram. And let me know what you think of this episode. Drop me a line. Do you think anything we talked about is bullshit? Are you upset with us? Because we were dogging on uh instagram uh tutorial videos I'm not dogging on them we're just making you aware right you're becoming obsessed over the wrong fucking things it's like people that get obsessed over like uh the the medical websites and they self-diagnose themselves go see a doctor <laughs> i'm out of here before i start ranting about something new thanks for listening everybody and uh, as always i will see you next tuesday